sofas, recliners, love seats. Everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute. Who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay. Leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? This is episode 12, Guilty Face. On April 8, 2008, two years after Jeff Pelley was convicted for murdering his family, an Indiana appeals court overturned his conviction. But in February 2009, the case was transferred to the Indiana Supreme Court, and justices there denied a rehearing of the case and reinstated the original verdict. Jeff wasn't going anywhere. He bounced between a few prisons in Indiana and eventually landed at Indiana State Maximum Security Prison in Michigan City, Indiana. That's where he's incarcerated today. From this point forward in the show, I want you to know up front, as a journalist, I don't know, nor do I personally have a vested interest in whether Jeff Pelley is guilty or innocent. I don't have an opinion or feeling either way about him. If he's a killer, then he deserves to be in prison. If he's innocent, then clearly the opposite is true. Throughout my investigation, I've requested interviews with Jeff and his wife Kim multiple times, but neither of them will agree to speak with me. What my goal is with this case is to investigate the Pelly family murders and follow the evidence to find the truth. In the first 11 episodes of the season, I've gone counterclockwise in time recapping a comprehensive history of the 1989 murders and what occurred afterwards. Moving forward, I'll be presenting a detailed investigation I've conducted solely based on case evidence, new interviews, and additional information I've uncovered about the crime. So buckle up, because this is going to be a wild next few episodes. The one person that's been most haunted over the years by Jeff's conviction, besides his family, is Alan Baum. When I first spoke with Alan on the phone last year, three words into our conversation, he paused and told me it's the one criminal defense case he'll talk to anyone about. It's the great failure of his legal career, he says. I've been in practice over 50 years, and I've tried about 35 murder cases, and won most of them. And... This is 
by far the saddest experience that I've had professionally. It's terrible. It's just terrible. Allen has never been able to understand why the jury didn't find Lois Stansbury's testimony powerful or why they weren't impacted by Allen's dissection of Rick Hoover's failures at the crime scene. Lastly, Allen says, at a minimum, jurors should have considered the washcloth expert testimony as grounds for reasonable doubt. I believed in Jeff's innocence and was shocked, just shocked at the verdict. My God, I mean, how much more reasonable doubt do you need? Allen's lamenting aside, there's nothing he can do now. The lawyer who represents Jeff currently is Francis Watson, a clinical professor of law for Indiana University McKinney School of Law's Wrongful Conviction Clinic. The Indiana University McKinney Wrongful Conviction Clinic has taken the case, and they're promising new evidence that would argue for Jeff Pelley's innocence. While producing this show, I visited her office in Indianapolis several times and spent hours inside of her war room. I was calling your numbers. I was like, maybe she's on the phone. Or maybe oh, something came up with court. This is my life, guys. This oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. So There's bad. papers everywhere. So we can sit in here. The rows of boxes and filing cabinets in her conference room are a clear indication she specializes in large, complicated post-conviction cases. Jeff, it's all, this is all Jeff. These are the old files of his lawyers. See? And then this is all the tapes. Since taking on Jeff's case over a decade ago, Francis has filed three different versions of what's called a Petition for Post-Conviction Relief, also known as a PCR. A PCR is the legal brief required to try and get Jeff a new evidentiary hearing in front of a judge. In a post-conviction proceeding in Indiana, there's no jury that hears the case. You, you go to the judge and you present your facts and you argue that you've proven your right to a new trial. So we're asking, we're going to be asking the court to vacate the four convictions for murder. And if that were to occur, then Mr. Pelley would still face the charges. It would be up to the state to determine whether or not to proceed to trial anew or dismiss. Fran, as I've come to know her, is gathering evidence to prove four things occurred that violated Jeff's rights and could prove he's innocent. Ineffective assistance, prosecutorial misconduct, speedy trial, and newly discovered evidence. Those are a lot of legal terms, so I'll break them down for you. Ineffective assistance of counsel, or IAC, is a nice way of saying Alan Baum wasn't a competent attorney at trial. A charge Alan takes no offense to, especially after spending years agonizing over failing Jeff. Well, I would be shocked if the appellate lawyers didn't argue IAC. I'm not offended. I'm not insulted. Lawyers make the best arguments they can on appeal. And uh, I don't feel that I need to defend myself on the examples that they argued for IAC. So I don't, I don't mind them arguing it. You've got to take your best shot. Next. Fran believes the prosecution telling jurors during trial that Jeff's blue jeans came out of the washing machine, knowing the state had no evidence or testimony to prove they'd been washed, 
was an outright lie and grounds for prosecutorial misconduct. If you look at the evidence about the washing machine, that's all made up. She has the same questions about police officers' seizure of the blue jeans that I had when I interviewed Craig Whitfield. So are you telling me that at a quadruple murder scene, they took a pair of blue jeans out of a washing machine wet? Wet, they would have had to have been wet and somehow packaged them in an Annis grocery store bag with a receipt dated the date of the prom in the bottom of it? That's not how you package evidence in, a, in an Annis grocery store bag with a receipt in the bottom. That would contaminate the evidence. Like, what, who else? Something else had been in that bag, right? So what do you know? You don't use a used bag to package evidence. The jury was told that the blue jeans had been taken from the washing machine having been washed. The jury believed from the way the evidence was presented that he'd washed his clothes. After he murdered these people, he left, didn't go straight up the stairs, turned and went into the laundry room, went this way, took off his pants, socks, shirt, put them in the washer and started it. Bomb never did what I call dig it out and pin it down. I asked him, who ever said they took them out of the washing machine? And he said, well, somebody looked in and saw them. I go, but looking in and saw them isn't the same as taking them out and drying them. Like one of the depositions I asked the guy, well, wouldn't you have had to dry them? Oh, absolutely, you would have had to dry them before you put them in a bag. And I go, so do you remember anybody drying them? But when they wrote to the FBI on May 9th, whatever date that letter is, they never said any pants were in the washer. None of it is true. It's all machinations, and it's so hard to believe. Fran is convinced without any doubt that when Craig took boxes of evidence out of storage in 2001, he wrongfully assumed the blue jeans in the grocery store bag were what was said to have come from the washer. Whitfield puts it together long before the prosecutor gets it. He puts it together as this cold case, and he starts with, oh, I took a new look at the same evidence, and I got it figured out. He washed his clothes. And then he makes it up. I mean, it's just that. And then he starts by going, what did he wash? He washed these blue jeans. When they boxed it all up in 89 and they put it away, they didn't have it organized very well and marked very well. And the reason is the investigation they did was all focused on Jeff. And when none of it pointed to Jeff, they boxed it all up and they stopped investigating. The blue jeans were what he wore out of the house. Numerous witnesses. The guy at the gas station, Mrs. Greer. What did he have on when he got here? What did he have on at the gas station? Hawaiian shirt and blue jeans. That's what they all said. Fran and I definitely feel the same, at least about the blue jeans. I'm not out here to legally fight Jeff's post-conviction battle, but the facts seem pretty clear, based on the evidence, that Jeff's blue jeans were not washed and did not come from the washing machine in the Pelly basement. In our discussion, Fran and I also agreed that the readable receipt and coins said to have been found in the pocket of the blue jeans were further proof that they hadn't been washed. A few years ago, Fran and her law students went to handle the evidence in person. I went and looked. We drive up there, students and I, we drive up there, take the camera, get the court to allow us to go in, because we, all we're trying to figure out is, what are you talking about these 34 coins? What 34 coins? What receipt? When you get to the trial, they like gloss over it, if bring it up at all. How could you wash your jeans and 34 coins stay in the pocket 
if it's not some super special load, right? I don't think anything was wet because if it had been wet, they would have documented it and they didn't. The fact that in 89, if they'd opened that washer and there had been a load of laundry belonging to that young man wet, he'd have been taken into custody. They'd have written the documents up. They're not there. And then when they reopen it in 2002, it's this bullshit. Fran accuses Frank Schaefer and his office staff of purposefully packaging the blue jeans in such a way before they were presented to the jury to keep members of the panel from asking the questions she and I have. She faults Alan, Jeff's defense attorney, for not catching this slick move. Out of the presence of the jury, the prosecutor says, well, I can take it all back to my office tonight and package it so they can view it. And Baum says, okay. Now, here, without any doubt, I'm not making this up, is what the jury saw. They saw no coins. It was packaged so that the Anna's grocery store bag is turned inside out. You can't take it out of the exterior bag and turn it over and see the actual coins. The jury never knew because of the way in which it was packaged and the way in which it was distributed during this, that it was an Anna's grocery store bag. I've alleged it's a Brady violation, that they knew or should have known they were presenting it in such a way that it was false evidence. Fran believes wholeheartedly that the blue jean evidence was fabricated. She doesn't deny the killer would have been covered in blood and likely would have needed to clean up. She just doesn't think the evidence proves that killer was Jeff. You're in the belief that there would have been brain matter and blood on the suspect, no doubt. Yeah, everybody agrees with that. I'll show you the pictures. There's brain matter on the table. Good gracious. I mean, the brains of these women have been dislodged from their skulls. And they're, it's over the walls, the floors. Mr. Pally, it's all over the walls. So it clearly sprayed. Jeff not having a trace of biological material on him when he showed up to pick up Darla for prom, Fran says, proves that he's innocent. That's crazy to think he could have gotten out of that house without that stuff being all down in that. He had like a mullet. In the beginning, I looked at this and thought, did he just get mad and go off? But it's methodical. It's not get mad and go off, because then you got to compose yourself to get all back together, get your hair done, get your clothes. He wore a Hawaiian shirt and blue jeans out of the house. He thought he was a styler. He had a mullet, picture it, a mullet and a Hawaiian shirt in those blue jeans. He thought he, you know, do you see? He was some 17 year old kid on the way to the prom, not having just murdered these people. Back in 1989, the initial detective on the case, John Bowditch, and estate trooper Mark Center had their own defense for that argument. So did the prosecutors at trial. Their argument pointed to the fact that evidence from the Pelly's upstairs shower proved Jeff washed up after the murders. That evidence being the wet washcloths and a drop of water in the tub basin. What's interesting is that last year, when I interviewed John Bowditch in person, he said that he didn't think Jeff would have had any debris or blood on him after committing the crime. He said he didn't think Jeff would have been close enough to the victims to be able to get bodily fluids all over him. 
Now, that's a complete contradiction to what John wrote in his police reports in 1989. I had to figure out why after 32 years, the former lead detective on this case was now contradicting himself. After midnight on July 6th, 2012, three teenage girls walked into the thick Appalachian woods somewhere along the Mason-Dixon County line. Hours later, under the glow of a nearly full moon, only two walked out. You may have heard about the Skylar Niece case of three teenage girls, a pact to kill, and one violent night under the stars deep in the West Virginia woods. But you've never heard it like this. From Waveland, I'm Holly Malay. And I'm Justine Harmon. This is Three. In 1989, law enforcement in St. Joseph County believed that small water droplets and damp washcloths found in the upstairs bathroom of the Pelly Parsonage on April 30th meant Jeff washed up after shooting his family. Jeff taking a quick shower and composing himself was a big part of the crux of John Bowditch's case that Jeff was guilty. But when I interviewed John with Mark Center last year, John didn't claim that at all anymore. They were shot with a shotgun. You don't have to be real close. You know, would you have much matter come blow back on you? Probably not. You know, the force on a shotgun is all going that way, especially with a deer slug. I mean, that wall was covered, the ceiling was covered, but there wasn't much back this way from where, you know, if he just come around the corner and they were right there by those windows, he's not going to have a lot on him because the whole force is going that way, not this way. I was floored. John had literally just told me that he didn't think Jeff had been close enough to the victims to get blood or debris on him, which is super strange considering that's not at all what jurors at trial were told. Trust me, I've read the transcript. Former cold case investigator Craig Whitfield believes Jeff would have had to clean up after committing the murders. That's why Craig won't waver in his belief that the blue jeans were washed. I've been to a number of shotgun death investigations, so, and each one has a common denominator, and that's very, very messy. I don't see anyway, that somebody couldn't have had some biological material on blood, uh, brains, something. The third legal violation claim Fran alleges is that Jeff's right to a speedy trial was violated. That's one of the reasons on direct appeal back in 2008, the initial verdict was overturned. Speedy trial violation claims are pretty common in PCRs. The fourth and final legal argument Fran plans to make on Jeff's behalf is that she has newly discovered evidence that proves a third party outside of the Pelly family had motive, means, and opportunity to kill Bob, Don, Janelle, and Jolene in 1989. Fran alleges in her legal filing that Bob Pelly's former job at Landmark Bank and his close relationship with Phil Hawley from Fort Myers are the reasons the family was massacred. The truth is more incredible than anything you could imagine, that it's a pretty incredible set of facts and that it started in Florida with Mr. Pelly's behaviors and choices 
of friends and associates and acts he did at a bank. There was a whole lot of bad going on at that bank that never came to the light of day. Why do I feel so certain? Tony Beeler. He wasn't a minister. He had a previous life. There were people, he didn't say who, but people were looking for him. And if they found him, they would kill him, his wife, his children, and a cat and a dog. They would wipe them out. On the next episode of Counterclock, hear from people who have waited 32 years to speak about this information on the record. Bob came to me and told me that he had discovered this improper handling of funds. Do you think that he was scared? Yes, I know he was. It involved people he knew, or that I knew, or we knew. I think, I assumed, rightly so, that it was church people. He knew these people, or this person. Listen to episode 13, Check the Bank, right now.